Welcome, guys. Welcome, everybody, to Grace this weekend. Thanks for being here. Welcome, everybody, watching online and at our live sites and the Montrose Building. Uh, thanks for joining us as well. Uh, we're in a series right now we're calling Love Liable, and uh, we've been working on this directive that Jesus gives us here in John chapter 15. John chapter 15, verse 12 and following, he says this. He says, my command is this, love each other as I've loved you. Greater love has no one than this, to lay down one's life for one's friends. And so we started digging at this at Easter, and we looked and, and saw that Jesus says, my, my greatest expression of love for you, the clearest picture that I can paint for you is the cross. That when you look at my, my death, my burial, my resurrection, if you want to see my definition of love, that's what that is. Uh, for God, it's not emotional, it's not romantic, it's tangible. Love is brutal and violent and bloody and real and determined and willful, and it looks like the cross. When Jesus says, I willingly laid my life down by my own authority, I take it up again, and I did that. I did that in a predetermined way. I did that on purpose. I did that completely. I did it without reservation, and I want you guys to love each other like that. So I want the church to love each other like that. I want you husband, wife, kids, parents, families, friends, even your worst enemy, I want you to be willing to love them in those ways. Love one another as I have loved you. And so we've been kind of layering that out and trying to see all that that means. And we started by going to another place in the scripture that's also talking about Jesus going to the cross. It's Philippians chapter two. And the Bible says this, and your relationships with one another have the same mindset as Jesus. Then it goes on, it says he, he went to the cross. What was his mindset? Going to the cross for Christ was not a, an impulse or an emotional reaction or a spontaneous thing. He decided, he predetermined to do that. Well, what was that mindset? And as we looked at that passage, we saw that mindset was the mindset of a servant and the mindset of humility. Christ was looking and saying, what is, what's best for you? What can I do for you? What do you need? And I will willfully suspend my rights. I will act in humility. I, don't, I, I have the right not to do this. I have the right not to be here. I have the right not to die. But I will suspend those rights in order to serve you in the complete way. So we said that's important. It's the mindset. It's the paradigm, the grid, the lens, the filter in which we would love. I'm looking at my relationships and I'm thinking through them in those ways. Now, the next weekend, then we kind of pulled down a, another layer of this, and we got into this passage in 1 Corinthians 13, where Paul, the Apostle Paul says, love keeps no record of wrongs. And we started talking about forgiveness. And we said, you know what human beings do the best? What we do the best and the most consistently and the most naturally is we sin against each other. And so if I'm going to be in any relationship on any level, I'm going to run into forgiveness. And the same apostle Paul wrote, he said, if, if you're going to love, you're going to have to deal with that. In fact, he says, rid yourself, rid yourself of all bitterness, anger, slander, brawling mouths, and, and bring in compassion and kindness. Forgive each other as Christ, as God in Christ has forgiven you. And so to love one another, we have to forgive one another because I cannot love you and be bitter at you simultaneously. I cannot love you and be thinking maliciously or acting maliciously against you simultaneously. So forgiveness 
is going to have to be on the table. And keeping no record of wrongs is simply erasing that ledger. They did this, they did this, they did this. I'm erasing that ledger. I'm forgiving you so that I can love you. And then last weekend, we looked at this in, in chapter 13, verse 6. The love does not delight in evil, but it rejoices with the truth. And we said that loving relationships have to be built on truth. And there is certainly a context in which I have to look and say, you know, I love you enough to maybe be the only person who disagrees with you. I love you enough, and that's why I can't celebrate these choices that you're making. I love you enough, but it's clear in the scripture that's not what God would want or desire, and, and I have to tell you the truth in order for me to love you. I don't hate you. I'm not trying to pull away from you. I'm not trying to cut you off or even condemn you. I love you. In fact, if I don't tell you the truth, that would be the hateful thing to do. And so we looked and said that has to be a part of our interactions with each other. We have to be truthful. And the basis of truth has to be in our relationships with one another or we can't be loving. Now, all of these things, they're online, they're on the website, they're uh, the podcast, it's all out there, it's all for free. I encourage you guys, if you haven't been tracking with it, maybe take the time and download this stuff into your life a little bit. It will be helpful. It will be life-changing. It really will start to reorient you. When you think about your relationships with each other and the way you interact with each other, it, it'll be very, very, I think, profound in those ways. So allow God to, to kind of enter into this conversation and press those things deeply within you. Uh, this weekend, I want to move then to the next verse of 1 Corinthians 13. This is verse 6. Verse 7 says this, love is the context. Love always protects, love always trusts, always hopes, always perseveres. And then the scripture goes on and says, love never fails. So the apostle Paul, when he's talking about love, here he's talking about God's perfect love. God's perfect love always protects. God's perfect love is always trustworthy. It always hopes, it always perseveres. God's perfect love never fails, and I want to love as I have been loved, so God in his perfection is never going to pull up short there, never going to hold a punch. Me and my imperfection at times is going to struggle with that, but that's what I'm, I'm going for, right? I want to bring those elements into my relationships with the consistency and the faithfulness that God brings them into our relationship with him. And so we'll just kind of start talking about this first one. It's this, that love always protects, that God in his perfect love for us protects us, shields us, helps us in my relationships with other people. Then I want to look and say, I'm loved like this, and I want to love others like this. I want to start asking myself the question, are my relationships protective then? Do I protect the people that I love? Am I protecting them in the manner and with the heart in which God might protect me? So this is what we're going to do this weekend. I want to, I want to take a deep dive on what God's protective love looks like. And I want to take us to a passage in Scripture that, that shows us that, describes a relationship with God and the writer is describing how he kind of dwells and lives in the protectiveness of God's love for him 
And we want to see what's true of God's love. And then we want to say, I want to love as I've been loved. So I want to make that true of my love as well. So if you got your Bible, grab them. Go to Psalms 91. Psalms 91. It's page 480. And the Bibles are in the chairs. If you want to use one of those, you can. This is on the app, too, if you want it. If you want a physical copy of the Bible and you don't have one, then just take that one with you. We'd love for you just to keep it. Psalms 91. And we're going we're gonna to take a deep dive on that psalm a little bit. Now, before we get into it, I need to set it up for you because I want to make sure that you know who wrote this and what their life was like because it'll kind of make the psalm make more sense. So the book of Psalms in the Old Testament, the first part of the Bible, the book of Psalms, you'll often hear us say that David wrote the book of Psalms, and he did. The book of Psalms is a collection of songs and poems and then even God speaking back. And, and it's, it's part of God's scripture that we would value, but it's a unique part. It has this poetic element to it. And King David, who was an ancient Jewish king, wrote a bunch of the Psalms, but he also collected other Psalms and put them in there. So there were other ancient Jewish writers who wrote some of the songs that, that David would have grown up with because he was an ancient Jewish king. So he would have grown up quoting these and singing these and reciting these. And Psalms 91 is one of those. So most scholars believe, and I agree with them, that Moses wrote Psalms 91. He wrote Psalms 90, we know that for sure. And we believe that he wrote Psalms 91. And so this was a psalm that David would have grown up reciting and singing and claiming the promises of God from. And he included it, right? He included it in his writing in the books of Psalms. So Moses wrote Psalms 91. If you're unfamiliar with Moses, I want to make sure you know his story a little bit because Moses grew up having a very difficult and dangerous and chaotic life in a lot of ways, right? So Moses was born into this. At the time that Moses was born, the Egyptian empire had enslaved the Jewish nation, and Moses was born as a Jewish child. Uh, the Jews, their population was growing so quickly that the Pharaoh, the head of the Egyptian nation, was afraid that too many of them would be born and his slave force would overthrow the government. So he put out a law and he said, I want all Jewish male babies that are born to be killed the minute that they're born. So Moses was born into that infanticide. Uh, he was born, his mom, of course, knew this was going on. She did something, it's kind of a famous Bible story, maybe you've heard it before. She made a basket and she hid him in this basket and she would float him in the Nile River and his sister was supposed to watch, watch, him, uh, watch him as he was doing this. One day, Moses and his basket floated away so the sister didn't get paid for babysitting that week and floated away. And one of Pharaoh's daughters found Moses in this basket. She then took this baby, this Jewish baby, adopted him and brought him into Pharaoh's palace. So Jew, uh, uh, Moses was a Jewish slave that was raised in an Egyptian palace. And that tension was there in his life, but he was educated, he was connected, he would have known kind of the, the power brokers of the day because of that. 
When Moses was a late teenager, probably in his early 20s, he was out and about one day. He saw a Egyptian slave master beating a Jewish slave. Moses lost his cool and he killed the slave master as he was defending this slave that was being beaten. When he killed him, then he had to run, right? Because he's already a Jewish child being raised in an Egyptian home, so he had to bolt. And so he ran and he lived most of his adult life as a fugitive from the Pharaoh in whom's home he was raised. And so Moses winds up in the wilderness. He's a shepherd out there. And God starts to interact with him in these really supernatural and powerful ways. And one of the famous ways that God interacts with him is he shows up to Moses in, in a burning bush. It's, called, it's how the Bible describes it. And so he's talking to Moses and he said, Moses, listen, I got something for you. Remember how you were a Jewish kid raised in a Egyptian home? Well, that makes you the perfect person to go and look at the Pharaoh who's hunting for you and wants to kill you and tell him, let my people go. And so Moses was not real thrilled about that, kind of got in a bit of an argument with God, uh, but lost it and wound up in going and doing it anyways. And that right there is probably all I need to say to you this weekend. If you're in an argument with God, you're going to lose it, right? So there you go. We're dismissed, right? So that happened. Moses winds up going back to Egypt, looks at the most powerful man in the world who can kill him with one word and says, um, this God that you don't know and don't believe in came and talked to me in a burning bush and sent me back here, even though you're hunting for me, trying to kill me. And I'm here to tell you to let your slave force go. All one to three million of them, you better do what God says. So that conversation didn't go well. And and the Pharaoh resists. And what happened then is God starts to do these supernatural things to protect and to reinforce and to empower Moses. So all these plagues start happening. Each of the plagues is designed to debunk the power of one of the Egyptian gods. And all these plagues start happening and they get worse and worse and worse and worse. And Moses keeps coming back to Pharaoh and, say, and saying, I told you, I told, you need to let him go. I'm telling you, he really was there. Finally, the Pharaoh relents. Moses leads one to three million people, Egypt, or, uh, Jewish slaves, out of Egypt. They, they are gonna, the Egyptian army comes after him. God parts the sea. The Jewish people walk through. The Egyptians try to pursue him. God collapses the sea on them, wipes them out. Just all these things where God is showing up in these incredible ways. They get out into the wilderness. Everybody's hungry. Moses is like, how am I supposed to feed one to three million people? So God does a miracle. He sends manna down from heaven, bread from heaven. And so they had, they had manna every day to eat. And then some of the Israelites are like, we're crossfitters, we need protein. And so God sent uh, quail in. He gave meat that way. Later on, they needed water. God did a miracle so that they had water. And again and again and again and again, Moses all throughout his life was kind of in one predicament after another one, in one set of danger after another one, one set of trials after another one. And he had a lifetime <clears throat> of seeing God show up again and again and again in these powerful ways. And it's from his life experience, from his personal interaction with God, from seeing these things with his own eyes, it's from that position that he writes Psalm 91. And so from all of that, Moses in Psalm 91 says this, 
Whoever dwells in the shelter of the Most High will rest in the shadow of the Almighty. He would look and say, Moses, is that just a praise song? No, 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 no. Listen, I can tell you something. When you dwell with God, you can rest in the shadow of the Almighty because he will show up again and again. He loves you and he will show up in this way. I say of the Lord, he is my refuge and my fortress, my God in whom I trust. He will cover me with his feathers and under his wings you will find refuge. His faithfulness will be your shield and your rampart. Moses is writing a worship song, so to say, to God, but he's doing that from all this stuff that he's been through. And he would look maybe at us if he was here this weekend, he would say, guys, listen, this stuff's legit. It's legit. God loves you and love always protects. And I was in some situations and God protected me again and again and again. That's why I wrote this psalm. Because I'm, I'm telling you this truth about God and I'm telling you this truth that I've seen and witnessed and been a part of with my own eyes. This is the character of God and what he is like. Love always protects. I am loved like that. I am now love liable. I want now to love like that. I want to love as I have been loved. So in Psalms 91, if these are the characteristics, if this is what it's like to be loved by God in these ways, how would I bring that into my life and my relationships? And how can I be like Christ, we would say, and love in those ways, all right? So let's look at this a little bit. What does Moses kind of accentuate about God's love, his protective love? What does that look like? So this is the first thing he says is fascinating. Moses would say this, or the scripture would let us know this, that love protects by sheltering. Love protects by sheltering. The way Moses says it there, <clears throat> that, that whoever dwells in the shelter of the Most High. Moses, as he experienced life, would say this. When I was in trouble, when I was in trouble, I would run to shelter. When I was exposed, I'm standing before Pharaoh all by myself. I had this thing, burning bush, let the slave force go. I, I had to run to shelter and I found that God will shelter me. God will get in between me and whatever danger is coming at me, and there's a shelter. His love protects me and shelters me. Uh, when I was growing up, my, uh, my dad had this rule for my sisters. I had two sisters, and my dad had this rule for them, and the rule was this, that if some guy wanted to take one of my sisters on a date, they had to call my dad and get his permission to, to take them on a date. And so I remember many times that the, the guys were asking my sisters out and the phone would ring. Back then the phone was on the wall. Ask your grandparents about it. But the phone was on the wall and, and the phone would ring and my sister would pick up the phone and it'd be some kind of murmuring and it'd be, okay, wait, here he is. Dad, can you talk to so-and-so? And so my dad would take the phone and he would grill these guys. He'd be like, are you a follower of Jesus Christ? Prove it from the Bible. You know, what's your credit score? Like, oh, just on and on and on. Like he would, he was not, it wasn't like some like courtesy thing. Like he was on it. And, and if he then gave his permission, 
he would let my sisters go on a date. Now, what would happen every once in a while was this. My sisters would come home from school. When my dad came home from the factory, he came in the same way every day. He'd come in the basement door, the bottom of the steps, he'd take his boots off because they were dirty, and then he would come upstairs and come right into our dining room. That's the way the house was laid out. So my sister would come home from school. One of them would come home from school. They would be at the dining room table bouncing, right? They'd be bouncing. And you hear my dad come in. You knew it was him. He'd take his boots off. He'd walk up the stairs, and they would meet him right there in the dining room. And some version of this conversation would happen once in a while. They would say, Dad, this guy is going to call and ask me out. I need you to tell him no. <clears throat> right? I don't, I don't want to go out with, with him. And they, and they would call and my dad would say, no, my sisters would run to the shelter of their father. See? I, I don't want to have this awkward situation. I, I, I'm, I'm, I'm 16. I'm caught in the moment. I don't really know how to let this guy down. And what they would say, instead of doing any of that, they would just say, well, you have to call my dad. <laughs> and then my father would protect them. He would shelter them. He would get in between them and whatever was kind of bearing down on them. See, love protects by offering shelter, right? So we shelter. We, we protect those we love. We shelter them physically. It's part of it, right? There's probably a time, especially if you're a parent, you've gotten in between something and your kid, a dog or a devil cat or something like that is coming at your kid and you will shut, they'll run to you and you shelter them. We'll protect them physically. We protect them morally, people that we love. We will look and say, you know, that, that immoral thing, it, it, it's going to have to go through me because I'm, I'm not going to introduce that TV show to my house. I'm not going to introduce that movie to my house. I'm not going to introduce that behavior to my house. I am a shelter for those. I'm not going to introduce that to our relationship. I'm a shelter in that. Physically, morally, emotionally. Emotionally. The, the crazy train, run to me and I'll protect you from it. That manipulation, the, the anger, the... You kind of, I, I'm safe, stable, protective. I make sense. I will shelter those that I love. Physically, morally, emotionally, relationally. I was hanging out with um, some teenagers last summer because I think teenagers are the funnest human beings that God ever created on planet Earth. I love to hang out with them. And so I was hanging out with them and we got in this conversation about the Bible and so we're talking about the Bible and, and kind of listening to their thoughts and stuff like that. And so after a bit, I asked him a question. I said, I go, guys, what do you think the Bible's for? What do you think the Bible's for? And one of them said, well, it, it tells you what to do and not do. And, and you do these things and like God's on your team. You do these things, God's not on your team. And like the Bible clarifies those things for us. That's what the Bible's for. I said, okay. I said, that's interesting. I said, let me ask you a question. I said, why... Why don't we lie to each other? Why is lying a sin? And they said some, some ver I'm paraphrasing all this. They said some version of, because the Bible says don't do it. I said, ah, seriously. I said, you know, that's not actually true. 
The Bible says don't, don't, don't lie, but that's not why the Bible says it. I said, you know why the Bible says don't lie? How come? Because it's not loving. Because it's not loving. See, I can't love my neighbor as myself and be a liar. So it's unloving. It destroys relationships. So I'm going to be a shelter. I'll tell you the truth. You may not like the truth. I'm not trying to be mean usually, but, I, but I'm always going to tell you the truth. You can, you can shelter in my honesty. Why does the Bible say don't steal? Because it's, it's like a sin to steal. and it, It's not why it's a sin. Why don't you steal? Because it's unloving. It's unloving. So if, I, if I'm taking a thing from a person, how deeply have I devalued the person and valued the thing? See, it's unloving. So I want to be a shelter. You can trust me. Trust me with your money or the car, whatever. Like, I'm, I'm not going to steal from you. Why aren't we, why aren't we slippery? L little white wise didn't hurt anybody. That's not true, and they destroy relationships. So why aren't we slippery? Because it's unloving. There, there's no confidence in it. There's no shelter in it. I don't, I don't know. If I run to you, am I, is it you? Am I getting, like, the, the real answer, like, there's no shelter in it. It's, un, it's unloving. So Moses says that God always protects. He's like a shelter, see, physically and morally and emotionally and relationally and spiritually. The, the, the false religion, the cultural trend, the hypocrisy in my own life, just knowing that I actually believe and do what I say I actually believe and do shelters. And Moses says, that, God's always like that. He loves us like that. And I want to love as I have been loved. So shelter. Now he goes on. He says, love always protects by sheltering. And then he gives another characteristic of love. He says this, love always protects by offering rest. Rest. Whoever dwells in the shelter of the Most High will find rest in the shadow of the Almighty. Love always protects by offering rest. When you run to this shelter, what you're going to find is rest, and that rest is going to protect you. I remember when um, our daughter was little, maybe five or six years old, just little, and uh, something had happened in the world. I think maybe it was when the terrorists attacked Paris or something like that. So, something that happened in the world. It's one of those news events that it's like on all day and we're all interested in it, right? So I'm reading it and listening to it. Now I have the TV on at home and we're just kind of watching it and, and Heidi and I are kind of in and out. You just kind of leave the television on because you're trying to get the updates of what's going on. And so that had happened all day long. And our, our daughter was kind of in and out of the room, and it didn't register with me that she was downloading what was happening here in front of her. So the evening played out. It was bedtime. We put everybody to bed. Heidi and I went to bed, kind of dozing off asleep, and suddenly the door opens, and you hear her crying, and in walks our daughter, and she stands right beside me on the bed, and she's crying, and she's like trembling a little bit. 
And I said, baby, what's wrong? And she said, I'm scared, I'm scared. I said, of what? She said, the guys on the television, the, the bad guys on the television, I'm afraid they're gonna, they're gonna get me. See, she was all scared. I said, oh, baby, I said, we're gonna be okay. We're gonna be okay. And I told her, I said, I, I said our soldiers are gonna protect us, and our police officers are gonna protect us, and daddy's gonna protect you, and we're gonna be, we're gonna be okay. And so we prayed together. We asked Jesus to protect us, and she was kind of calming down, but still tense. I said, sweetheart, why don't you climb in bed with me and mommy? And so she, she climbed in bed between Heidi and I, and Heidi kind of put her arm over her, and I put my arm over her. And when she settled in that shelter of the love of her parents, her body literally relaxed. Like you could feel the tension come out of her. She found rest. See, she found rest. She was protected and she found rest. Now what's fascinating is Christ would say, I love you guys like that. I want you to take, it's one of the things he says, I, I want you to take all of your anxiety and all of your cares and cast them on me and I will give you rest. I, I want you to take all your burdens, all your spiritual burdens, cast them on me and I will give you rest. I want to love you by carrying things for you that you cannot carry for yourself. This is Moses. God said, let my people go. What are you gonna do about it, Moses? Not much, but God, if you wanna go ahead and, <laughs> right? God's like, I, I, I have it, Moses. Find your rest in me, run to my shelter. So I'm looking, saying God loves me like that. That's characteristic of his love. Do I love people like that? Am I a place of rest for people and the people that I love? I remember years ago uh, when the kids were little, Heidi was staying at home with them full time, working from home and staying at home with them full time. We have six children, if you don't know. We have seven now because we have a daughter-in-law, but we had six children at home at the time, and they're all little, so we're doing diapers and formula, and, and it was just nuts. In that time of our life, what was very difficult, Heidi's mom had died and my parents had died. And so we had a lot of pressure with all little kids at home and the pressure that comes with that. And it was getting difficult for me. I'm kind of a, I'm a little high strung. Heidi calls me sparky because I'm always a little mad about something all the time, right? I, I could be the Hulk. And so that, that's kind of the way I am. So you add a bunch of like legitimate pressure and stress to me and I can be unbearable and so I'm working and trying to survive kind of work and then I'm going home and it's a house full of children and babies and so I'd walk home and the kitchen would be a mess and the house would be a mess and like the baby would be painted purple for some reason and like you just never knew what you were going to walk into and I'm coming home full of stress because one of the youth pastors inevitably had done something and so I'm walking home all tense and I want to go home and I want peace and I want quiet and I want order and that's a ridiculous desire at that phase of your life and so I would walk in and I would just be a grump monster. Why is it clean? Everybody clean the kitchen right Right now, get the house clean up. Somebody go get the paint thinner and wash your brother, right? Just, <laughs> da, 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 da. and it was kind of that way every day for a while. And finally, after a while, one night, 
got the kids to bed, Heidi talked to me, and she, she goes, I need to talk to you, which is universal for you're in trouble. And so I was like, what is it, dear? And she goes, listen, I can't take this anymore. You come home, she says, sweetheart, I love you, but you're the worst part of my day. The tension you bring into this house, the stress you bring into this house, I clean that kitchen five times a day. It doesn't last 10 minutes with six kids running around. She said, the, kid, the kids aren't looking forward to you coming home. They tense up. They like panic to clean the house. And she said, this, this has to change. See, it's too much. And I remember hearing that and praying about that and, and talking to the Lord and saying, you know, I, I love my wife. I love my children. I am not protecting them. See, I'm not a place of rest. I started talking to the Lord and saying, Lord, you, ha- you have to take, I'm not resting in you. That's why nobody can rest in me. I come home from all this pressure and then I have all this emotional baggage that I'm carrying, trying to process through death and grief. And then I come home to be the pressure, the pressure of being a young dad with lots of kids. I can't handle it. I need you to take my anxiety and my care. And I started praying this prayer. I started saying, God, would you allow me to be the best part of Heidi's day? Would you allow me to be the, <laughs> the best part of my kid's day? And I got into a habit. I still have this habit. I pull in the, the garage, I put my truck in the garage, and I take a breath and I pray. And I say, Lord, I want to give my anxiety and care to you. I, I need some bandwidth here to go and love the people that you've called me to love. I want them to rest in me like I rest in you. I've been loved like that. I want to love them like that. So Moses is like, that's how God is. That's what he's like. You run to that shelter. He's in between you and whatever's happening. And then you rest in him. You, You have to, right? And he does that. And then Moses goes on, he says this. God, his love protects by sheltering. His love protects by offering rest. And then his love protects by his faithfulness. He says this, he will cover you with feathers and under his wings you will find refuge. His faithfulness will be your shield and your rampart. A shield is something you put in front of you. A rampart is an earthwork that you duck behind. You you duck for cover. And Moses says God's faithfulness is going to shield you and you hide behind it. You depend on it. You need the shelter. It's going to be there. You need the rest. He's going to give it. And his faithfulness is why you believe that and cling to it. I think faithfulness is one of the characteristics of God that we take the most for granted. But Jesus is super clear about it. He says, listen, you receive the forgiveness of your sin that's offered through me alone. And you believe that I'm God and that I rose again from the dead and that I am the sole source of salvation, then you will be saved. And he says, when you accept me like that and I enter your life, here's the promise I am making to you. I will never leave you and I will never forsake you. I am faithful to you. When you feel distant from God, God didn't move, you did. 
When you feel like God's silent, it's not because he quit talking, it's because we quit listening. When, when, when you pray and you're like, I didn't get an answer from God, you, you got the answer, it's just not the one you were wanting him to come through with. He, he never moves. He's unchanging, the Bible says. The Bible says he's our ever-present help in time of trouble. His faithfulness is a massive way that he expresses his love for us. If I want to love as I have been loved, then I want to be faithful in my relationships. It's protective. People can hide and be shielded by my faithfulness. I meet with uh, some young men here at the church, and we have, call them dad lessons. And, and a lot of these guys, they're married, and they, they, they want to be a dad, but they're scared to death of being a dad because they've never had a dad. And so they'll look and say, I don't, you know, my, my father didn't have a father, my dad didn't have a dad, and I, I, I want to be a dad, but I don't know how to be a dad, I'm scared to be a dad. And so we meet together every once in a while, and I give them dad lessons. And so they'll, they'll look and say, Jeff, it seems like you had a great dad, and I did have a great dad, you seem like at least a functional dad. And I, okay, C plus, <laughs> got through my whole academic career that way. And I'm like, yeah, functional dad. And they'll say, can, can you help us be a dad? And I'll say, yes. And I, here's lesson number one. I said, here is the key to fatherhood. By the way, this is profound. I'm going to write a book about this. You guys probably want to get a tattoo. Here it is. Ready? This is the key to fatherhood. 90% of fatherhood. Ready? This is the smartest thing you've ever going to hear in your life. Ready? 90% of being a dad is showing up. Showing up. Don't leave. Be faithful. It's 90% of it. Everything else is in the details and depends on what your kid's like. Part of the reason why I had a stable home growing up, I did not have an easy childhood. We had a lot of trauma, a lot of pain, a lot of sickness. We had very difficult times. Part of the reason I had a stable home is because in the middle of all of that chaos, it never crossed my mind that my dad would disappear. I knew every time I called him, he would take my call. Now, I knew he'd tell me the truth, but I never wondered if he wasn't going to be around. By the way, you want to know the secret to marriage? Because we get that a lot. Heidi and I coming up on 26 years, so people are like, how do you, how do you stay married that long? Some of you are 30, 40, 50 plus years, and it, it's mind-boggling because it hardly ever happens now, and nobody, know, their grandparents weren't married that long, their parents weren't married that long. How in the world do you do it? Here's a secret to you, right? The secret's gonna blow your mind. Is that Heidi and I are writing a book about this right now. This is probably a tattoo you wanna get. This is the most insightful thing you're ever gonna hear about marriage. Ready, here it is. 90% of marriage is deciding that you're going to stay in the marriage. Everything else is in the details. It's faithfulness. So you and Heidi, you've been married that long because you found your soulmate? Well, I, sometimes we're soulmates. I mean, <laughs> eh? is it because you guys have the same common interest? Oh, yeah, I'm incredibly passionate about exercise. <laughs> I mean, that's what bonds us together. Right? See, how do you say Mary so long? I, I love Heidi passionately, and she loves me passionately, and part of what has fed that passion is faithfulness. That's what allows two people to change. 
right? She's not who she was when she was 21. I'm not who I was when I was 22. We change, but we're faithful. And the faithfulness protects. I remember my mom and dad would fight and they'd fight in front of us. I'm not sure that's always bad, by the way, but, but they would fight in front of us, and then one of them would take a walk, taking a walk. And as a little kid, I would think, oh, that's interesting, mom's taking a walk. As an adult, I'm like, oh, walk is code for slam the door and stomp out of the house. And she would take a walk. It never occurred to me or crossed my mind that she wasn't coming back or that it was the beginning of the divorce. And the protection, the protection that faithfulness brings, it's a shield, it's a rampart. You hide behind it. See? In friendship, in family, in, in church family. See, faithfulness. And Moses said, that's God. I mean, I was in the craziest, I mean, how, how, I'm like a shepherd. I got stuck raising like a few million people and I'm supposed to feed them? And my answer is, uh, bread will come from heaven. <laughs> See? But God was always faithful. And I learned to trust him. And I learned to duck under his cover in his shelter. I found rest there. How in the world else would you possibly deal with the stress and the anxiety? And when I did that, his faithfulness was my shield, my rampart, and it will be yours. He loves you like that. And if we're to love as we have been loved, I want that to be characteristic. He will always, his love is perfect. I want to always. And I want to be faithful. It's fascinating when Moses goes on how he ends this psalm. There's a bunch in there. You should read the whole thing. But he ends it this way. Verse 9, he says, it, this is the Lord now talking back to Moses. So the Lord says to Moses, if you say... The Lord is my refuge, and you make the most high your dwelling. If you engage God like this, if you say the Lord's my refuge, and you make the most high your dwelling, because he loves me, says the Lord, I will rescue him. I will protect him, for he acknowledges my name. God looks and says, if you say that you are mine, that you love me, I love you, I'm all in. Because I am your God and you are my loved one, I will protect you. And we would take and say, that's God. I, I say that about God. God gives that to me. Now I want people to say that about me. Because you're my husband, because you're my dad, because you're my friend, because we're in this relationship. What I say to you is I, I will love you this way. Bank on it. And we're gonna, we're gonna go a bunch of different directions, right? From the basket to the wilderness to the Pharaoh to the promised land. But you can know that in that journey, I love you. I love you. And I wanna be your shelter. I wanna be a place of rest. I wanna be faithful. I wanna love you the way that I have been loved. I wrote these questions and I was trying to think of like a, 
a pithy way to help us to remember this a little bit. So I, I wrote these questions down just to process a little bit. I, I, the, here's the first one. Do you protect from harm or do you introduce it? Do you protect from harm or do you introduce it? In your words, so are my words cutting and wounding or are they healing and helping? Uh, your morality, your example, would you want your kids to be like you, right? Would you want your friends to do what you did? Kind of thing. Do you protect from harm or do you introduce it? Here's the second thing I said, I wrote down was this one. Are you a shelter or are you the storm? Are you a shelter or are you the storm? Think about things like your temper. A am I the worst part of the, my loved one's day? Am I the shelter or I, am I the storm? Your, your gossip with your friends and family, can, can they pour their heart out to you? Or will you transmit the information? Are you the shelter or are you the storm? Your decisions, right? Are, are they selfless or selfish? Uh, dad, does dad introduce financial stability into the family or is he the one that went and bought the thing again? Does mom introduce, you know, frugality into the family or does she, you got what name brand thing to do what with? See, my decisions. And just play it out in all your relationships. Am I the shelter or am I the storm? Am I the source of rest or the source of unrest? And then the third thing I wrote down was this. Are you a comfort or a contrarian? Are you a comfort or a contrarian? Are you going to receive sympathy from me? or cynicism from me. If I go to the Lord, I'm gonna, I'm gonna receive mercy, gentleness, grace, compassion, respect, truth, or cynicism, I, I, I did this, this, and this, I'm really in this rough way. Well, that's what you get for making stupid decisions, dummy. See, am I compassionate or a contrarian? Is there compassion or comparison? Honey, I'm so sorry you didn't make the team. And you worked so hard. It's, it's hard all these years you played JV and not to make varsity and your friends and stuff like that. See, is it compassion or, well, it, I mean, I told you this summer to go to the camps to work out. Your sister did it. She's on the team. So what does love do? It, it, it always protects it's always going to try to make that move. It's going to show up in that way. It's going to look like sheltering. It's going to look like rest. It's going to look like faithfulness. Christ loves us in that way, and we want to love each other the way that we've been loved. Okay? All right. Band's going to come out and give us a little space to think and pray. And guys, I, I encourage you to do this. This stuff... It's hyper-individualized between you and God and you and people. And, and this, is, this is a place where the, the Bible says that God gives us the Holy Spirit and the Holy Spirit is our helper. And a big part of how the Holy Spirit helps us is he helps us apply scripture to our individual situations. So this is a time that you would pray to God and say, God, would you help me? 
Because you've probably got a relationship that's in your mind right now where you weren't protected or maybe where you didn't protect. Like God's probably got it on your brain. So what do I do? How do I navigate it? And taking a few minutes and being still, why this is kind of fresh on the brain, and just saying, God, would you help me love the way that you love me, okay? Jesus, do that for us in these moments. Holy Spirit, please help us. Challenge us, convict us, encourage us, comfort us. All that you do, do for us in this moment between us individually and you. God, we want to love in these ways, but it, it is not often natural. It can be very confusing. And then there's all the personal relationship side of it that we have to deal with. So God, if you would walk us through that, help us to see your word, your truth, your example, and then bring that into the depth of our lives, we would be grateful. So in these moments, Jesus, if you would work in those ways, we'd be grateful in your name. Amen.